Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, S with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you feeling? I'm doing great. Great. Yeah. How you doing? You know, I have been drinking, so... <laughs> yep. Yep. I did a live bef- uh, before we started recording because the... Um, True Crime and Extraterrestrials Alien Merch is on truecrewmerch.com. So I was doing the official announcement about that. Had a glass of wine while I was doing it. We get on here. We always chit-chat before we get started. I had another another glass and a half after that. So the point is, is I'm loose and buzzy. We haven't even started yet. This might be an old school uh, TCAC episode where I black out by the end. Who knows? Hey. I mean, hopefully after we've... (laughs) Recorded the extra bit at the end, but yep. then after that, yeah, yeah, yep. exactly. Or Good I just nurse. don't remember it. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Oh, alcohol or not, I tend to not remember them. Same. Um, now listen, there's a story I have to share, and <laughs> I haven't even told Christy this, so this is new for everybody. But I've just had a couple of weeks where it's like, no matter how hard you try. Every little thing, and I've this has happened to me before in the past too. I know I've talked about it before, but like when every little thing that could go wrong goes wrong, right? Like I got a flat tire, had to wait for an hour for AAA uh, in the middle of the night. I spent a lot of money on a new water heater in June. It a pipe burst, had to get that fixed. Another chunk of money. Um, got the mold being remediated in my my garage. Uh, they sent me an incorrect invoice. I wrote back. I said, please send me the proper invoice for the right amount. I'll pay it. 
Instead, they chose to put a lien on my house. Everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. And these are just the things that I'm sharing publicly. There's lots of other things going wrong. The point is, so I'm just looking, I'm just looking to find little, little pockets of joy at the moment. Yes. Saturday, this past Saturday, a friend of the podcast, Whitney, Whitney Tancred, she was like, do you want to go for lunch? And I said, sure. Yeah, I do. So there's this little area in Studio City here um, near the old Sportsman Lodge. And they've built, it's like a little restaurant shops. There's like a little river running through it. I was like, why don't we oh, go, nice. why don't we go get sushi? I said, that sounds great. So we get there. And again, like, it's just one of those times where it's like, you know, it, it, it's taken a lot for me to, to, to get out and um, not just hibernate in my home because it's, a, you know, been a tough time. So it's like really taking all of my energy to get there. And I get there and I'm happy to see her. Um, happy to be there. Happy to be eating sushi. I'm like trying to find the wins, right? Of course. And so here's a fun fact about me. I typically am always sitting crisscross applesauce. Typically, almost always. Sure. Sitting in a chair with my legs hanging off the end is actually extremely uncomfortable for me. I don't know sure. why. Um, especially as my body has become smaller, uh, I my tailbone like hits the chair quite often, and so sure. a way to alleviate that is by like sitting on my feet, if that makes any sense. Of course. So I'm usually either crisscross applesauce or I will sit on one of my feet. So it kind of like raises my butt off the chair, so it's not pressing. <laughs> We're sitting at lunch. I'm sitting again on my foot, so it's under my butt. Right? My mm-hmm. other le- leg is dangling. And the woman next to me, I'm chatting to Whitney. The woman next to me, I'm on the bench, right? There's like a bench. With a, we're at little tables. Whitney's on a chair across from me. The woman next to me on the bench, who's about four and a half feet away, like pretty distanced, like pretty, pretty good distance between us. She goes, excuse me. Um, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry to do this. And in my mind, I go, Guess I've been recognized from TV, (laughs) right? And I'm like, it's not a problem. She goes, yeah, could you put your foot down? I would rather not have your dirty shoe near where I'm eating. It's disgusting, and I'd appreciate it if you would get it out of my area. And I literally, I literally, without hesitation, was like, I have a back problem. Good. Because I'm like, I it is it's true. I'm not sitting like this. But also to paint the picture for you, this is a bustling, yes, it is a nice sushi restaurant. It is not. We're not talking fine dining here. It's lunch. And there sure. are children on either side of me with their families standing on the bench in their shoes. And here's the other thing: she was eating alone. If she had a legitimate and I can have complete compassion. If you have a legitimate germophobia, that's debilitating. I get it. But you did have a chair on the other side of the table that you could have eaten at. You didn't have to sit on the bench that was shared with other people. Mm. And she was like, oh, well, if you have a bad back, I guess whatever. And then because I'm Canadian and we were passive aggressive, I basically was like, no, it's fine. I'll accommodate you. Which I did, because that's what we do. We just are, it's impossible for us to fully stand our ground. Um, 
Of course. But it was just one of those moments where I was like, and I'm going to be vulnerable here for a moment on the podcast. That's what I do quite often, especially when I've been drinking. But I was like, lady, if you knew how hard it was for me to even get out of bed this morning, if you knew how hard it has been just to function for the last little while. And that's what you brought to my day. Yeah. I don't wish you well. Oh, there's a reason she was alone. (laughs) (laughs) Well someone, Someone who feels the need to, I'll say, yuck someone else's yum. Because what were you doing? Nothing. Nothing. The shoe was nowhere near. It was under our table. Like, it was under also, my body. It's also not like you had taken your shoes off of or something. Of course not. So it's like, what is wrong with you? I essentially am just trying to avoid walking into a restaurant with a rubber ring to sit on. That's the truth. I'm trying to have sure. just a scotch of dignity. Just a scotch of, like, sure. I'm still hot. I'm not having to sit on a rubber ring because of my protruding tailbone you know like sure let me let me have let me sit on my own foot again it was nowhere near her beside her on the other side i shit you not there was a woman with two kids both standing on the bench and she had her feet up on a chair just lounging so it also for context it wasn't it was it wasn't in the way i was sitting was not out of place um but i will also say that this woman sent back everything that she was she had ordered complained about everything she had ordered and i wasn't eavesdropping Mm. i just could see that it was like everything was getting sent back she was complaining about everything and look there's no planet on which she listens to the show but if in a one in a billion chance she listens to the show what i would offer is i don't know what you're going through picky woman um i'll say it dragon woman i don't know what you're going through And I have Mm -hmm. great compassion for whatever it is that made you this way. And I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that you are this way. Because if you are so entitled that you could not look beyond your own personal experience and and believed that, that me sitting on my foot affected you so deeply that you needed to shame me, mock me, whatever you want to say, all of the above... It must be really hard being you. And go straight to hell. Ride the toe of my boot. You can ride the toe of my fucking (laughs) boot, lady. (laughs) I was going to say, and I I just uh, hope you go fuck yourself, lady. (laughs) But it is, listen, and if I impart nothing else in this episode, like, I really do think that the adage about, like, you never know what someone else is going through. Like, choosing kindness choosing to say is this worth it in this moment that's the lesson i offer dear listeners that's the lesson i offer in this episode of the show not that i think any of our listeners are assholes i don't um but you know what i'm saying it's just like yeah i could have cried in the moment like it was really one of those things where it's like when you've had a really hard time where like everything is going wrong that could go wrong, mm-hmm. you know, so many things. It just takes one it just thing takes to that, push. Exactly. Yeah. And do you feel good about that, Dragon Woman? 
That's who she's going to be known as now. On she's new. <laughs> she's now a character on the show. Um, do you feel good about that dragon lady? Like, does that make you feel nice that it was like that was almost the thing that made me have a have a mental breakdown in public? Oh, again, I stand by. There's a reason she was eating alone. Yeah. Nothing is ever good enough for her. Yeah. How she. I can only assume she, I was going to say, how could she tolerate the children that were near her? I can only assume she also spoke with them about it. Not that I had seen. Not that I had seen. But again, I guess maybe she didn't like having the view of the bottom of my shoe under my leg. I guess that was offensive to her. Well, don't look at her. Exactly. Or sit on the fucking other side of the table. Like, this is like, again, I'm like, I, 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 I don't know what to tell you, Lady Jane. I've been on flights where people fucking clip their toenails. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's disgusting. It's revolting. It's not okay. I wouldn't, like, I'm like, well, it's not my place. Not my journey. I'm on my own. Of course. I'm on my own. Can you imagine oh. in a million years saying to someone... Like, it's just, like, it's so out of the realm for me, I think is the bigger point. That I'm like, you would have to be doing something so egregious to me for me to ask you to stop. Like, and I'm not saying that it's yeah. like, but you know what I mean. Like, it's just like politeness. Yeah. Oh, I am a doormat <laughs> by nature. <laughs> um, people c- can get away with murder. And I'm just like, yeah, well, I don't, I don't want to upset them. Or whatever, but it's like, if if someone was sitting next to me, like right beside me, and was sitting in the way you were, and their shoes were off, I still wouldn't have been ballsy enough to say anything. I would have been like, they're in their seat. And I wouldn't have either. And to be honest with you, I feel like I would have been like, that's weird. Oh, well. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Yeah. Like, for me, I was like, I don't. I don't know. I, maybe that just speaks to my love of food that I'm like, it's going to have to be a lot worse for me not to want to eat. Like, like I really thought this story was going to go to like a, the woman leaned over and was like, I'm so sorry, but you've stepped in something horrific. Like a, she could see it and you couldn't or what? Like, I thought it was going to be a that, but wowza. Yeah. Wow. God, I just wish we knew her name so we could... Just do a quick deep dive on her socials. Oh, I should have asked. She doesn't. Well, she'd have Facebook. I was going to say she doesn't have Instagram. I, I love that you're making a profile for this woman so much. I, of course um, I am. I, I should have asked for the credit card information, not the number, just the name. I should have. I should have asked the servers because yeah. they also were seeming to be very like downtrodden about this situation. Of course, I'm dying to know how much she tipped. Not enough. I guarantee it. Also, yep. and this is the la- and this is how petty I am that I'm going to share this detail because it's not necessary. It's not necessary at all. <laughs> I can't. I've, I've drank just enough. I'm in the sweet spot. Mm-hmm. So I'm watching her, and then I I did shift how I was sitting, and I was so uncomfortable, like legitimately so uncomfortable, and I'm like trying to get comfortable, and I just can't. And like, I'm not being dramatic. Like it was literally like, I'm looking at her and I'm like, okay, she's asked for the bill. Great. She's going to sign and pay so I can sit how I want to sit. That would be nice. Um, Of course. That's the other thing. I'm like, God, I think I've been sitting this way for 
probably most of my adult life and certainly the last like two, three years of my life. I think I, sure. I, I can't name a time that I've not sat that way uh, if I'm in that position. Uh, no one's ever commented before. Anyway, point being, she pays her bill finally and then I she goes to the bathroom. Now, I know what you're thinking. Was there a line for the bathroom? No, because it was um, there. all of the bathrooms were all gender. So okay. there's multiple options and I just had a clear view. So I was like, there's no one else that I've seen going in and out of that area. So what I'm saying is, is that she went into the bathroom. She was in that bathroom mm-hmm. for so long that I'm like, a um, couple things. One, were you doing a little nose candy? Were we doing a little oh. zip, zip, nip? Sure. Um, were you taking a massive dump? Oh, I could see that. And then I know some people are going to say, well, maybe that's why she was you know, sensitive about your shoe because she has, uh, you know, dietary things, whatever. Then then don't eat in public. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Then then don't eat with the, where other people are. Because I don't think that my shoe being four and a half feet away from her is what made her have diarrhea. That's not possible. The story I've written is she had severe diarrhea. And I hope she's a horrible person. I hope that for her. I thought you were going to say, like, the bathroom door opened, like someone went in. (laughs) As she was coming out, you witnessed she did not wash her hands or something. Like, I was expecting something like that. That would have been nice. That would have been nice to see. Anyway, that's what I got for you. That's where we're at. We're doing the best we can. Always doing the best we can. Yeah. Look, it's uh, whatever we can do to get by. Do you got to do to get by. I ate McDonald's for lunch today, and I may order it once we're done recording tonight. You know, that's where I'm at. A different different mm-hmm. order. Different order. Different things. I wouldn't judge you even if it was the same order. <laughs> the amount of double quarter pounders I could probably put down in a day? Yeah. Troubling. Someone once asked me, uh, I had posted a picture of me eating a burger, and someone was like, is that a McDouble? And I was like, why would I ever order a McDouble when I can get a double cheeseburger that has two patties, two slices of cheese? Did you know the McDouble has two patties, one slice of cheese? Who chooses that? Who chooses that? Who chooses that? Who chooses that life? Who chooses um, one less cheese? Like that makes sense. That's 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 insane that to me. Literally, the only difference between those two burgers, I believe so. That's insanity. Why do they McDonald's? Even, what are we? Why doing do they here? even offer it as a menu item? Are people like, oh, that's what I need? Because again, I get it. If you can't do cheese at all, that's that makes sense to me. But one cheese versus two? Come on, the ratio's all off. Okay, so I'm going to ask in the moment. Yeah. What was your first order? What's going to be your second? First, of course, was double cheeseburger, medium fries. And I didn't get a Diet Coke because I already had Diet Coke. And I was like, ooh, like you don't need to be constantly drinking Diet Coke. But I've been craving a hot fudge sundae. Of course. I've been craving a hot fudge sundae. So I feel like second order, if I'm being honest, I kind of just want another double cheeseburger. But maybe a McNug situation. Ooh. Nugget fry, uh, hot fudge sundae, could be that. Okay. There's okay. also new sauces. There's something called right mambo sauce, I believe, and there's another one called something jam. Haven't tried those yet. Right. 
haven't tried those yet, but I feel like if I'm going to do it, I want to do it like um, as the chef intended. Of course. <laughs> Which means my- with a McNugget <laughs> as opposed to a fry. Of course. Now, my question about the new sauces, why are we dicking around and bringing out new sauces when we had a perfectly good honey mustard that we got rid of? Uh, Look, if there are any, one of the big, big things I think I'm hearing from you and I'm realizing Mm -hmm. internally Mm -hmm. is that McDonald's honey mustard was so beautiful. Can you still get it in the States? I don't know if you can. I don't think so. I think they just got rid of it. Was no one ordering altogether. it? Because then, you know what I say? For shame, fellow McDonald's enthusiasts. For shame. You didn't try that. We, that honey mustard was next level. It seems they ch- they just swapped it out for hot mustard. And I don't want a hot mustard all the time. I don't want a hot mustard ever, but I get it anyway to let them know that there are still mustard enthusiasts out there that would like that as a dipping option. Now, hold on. I'm looking at this. I'm looking at this. It appears that I think you can still get it in the States. Oh. And the hot mustard. And honey on its own. Now, what I think you can get honey on its own here, too, but... What I'm thinking is this. Do we? Because you don't have the honey mustard option. So, rather, do you try getting a hot mustard, getting a honey, honey. mixy-mix, and see what happens, a hot honey mustard. A hot honey mustard. That might be even better. Who knows? Sweet, spicy. That is that is a good point. That is a good point. Just also know my mouth is watering. <laughs> Just like aggressively so. <laughs> oh, well now, oh yeah. Now I'm like, why, why'd I have to bring up orders? Because this is so early in our evening. I know. <laughs> we have such a ways to go that I'm like, oh shit. How am I? I've gone to how, Uber how Eats. How much longer? I've gone to Uber oh, okay. Eats. I've confirmed. Yep. It still does allow you to order the honey mustard. I will also say it's mambo sauce and sweet and spicy jam. Those are the two ones. Can we just America? In America, can we also cut the shit for a second here? Because here's the thing, and this is my fault. This is on me because when I go to visit um, Christy, there is uh, quite often she'll make a, a a cookie dough bar, which is we get cookie dough and then there's there's all kinds of toppings that we can add. And that yeah. is a dream. And what I'm realizing in this moment is, and again, I take full responsibility. Why? Why have I never, when you've been here, gotten like a 40 pack of nugs and all the sauces and we just do a we just do a full tasting like a wine tasting? Oh, a sauce flight. Just like a... Oh, now, I know okay. that you t- you typically do them straight up. You typically don't get a sauce. Quite often, yes. But for the nature of the event... Oh, I dip. <laughs> I, it doesn't take much for me to dip. Oh, I dip is an amazing quote. Yeah. 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 I mean, right this second, and I... I ate not long ago, so I should not be feeling this. But right now, 
I want that fucking double quarter pounder. Mm. But take off the pickles, take off the onions, replace them with nugs, slap it together and give it to me. Yeah. I've never put a nugget on that burger, but I'd like to. And to that I say, what are we doing? I know. What are we even doing? That's what life is about. When you're having a week (laughs) where nothing can go your way, put a nugget on a burger. Yeah. It was your beautifully light tone of, that's what life's all about. That's what it was just like a... It was like a family channel movie where we learned to get along with a step sibling or something. I don't know. It's I been like a while that since I've watched uh any uh family movies. But uh the movie will be called yeah. Nugs and Hugs. Oh. Think about it. Think about it. Now listen, uh before we get into it, what you drinking over there? Oh, I've got a water and a Coke for now. I'm probably changing it up at the break. We'll see. Well, I'll check in again and uh, at that point. Also, want you to know my glassy is empty. It's for the best. It's for the best. I'm going to drink some water now. And then at the break, I'll get another drink at a reasonable increment of time. Hey, I don't know if anyone has ever described our show as a reasonable <laughs> increment of time in any way in any yeah. way shape or form correct look this episode we're of course discussing the lombard street haunting Ooh, spooky um this was of course our september patrons poll pick every month over on patreon our patrons vote for one of the episodes we cover per month on this the main feed of the show so check out patreon.com slash true crime and cocktails if you'd like to learn more about that subscription-based service. So, I don't know anything about this. You may not either. Good news, Christy wrote a synopsis. So here we go. Patricia Montandon? Montandon. Montandon. Patricia Montandon rose to fame in the 1960s as a self-made socialite in San Francisco. She was known for throwing elaborate parties and for having three failed marriages, one of which ended in a very nasty very public divorce. Patricia was also known for her home on Lombard Street, the most famous crooked street in the world. After a party in 1968, strange, unexplained events started to happen in the house and to the people who stayed in it. In what is promised to be an absolutely batshit episode that will go to places that you just didn't see coming, prepare yourself for disturbing paranormal activity with a side of piping hot gas. <laughs> I'm going to tell you this right now. That's the first thing I wrote for this whole episode. (laughs) I love it. Uh, Because I got just slightly into my notes and I went, I I guess we're just, we're on the gossip train in this one. Because there's just so many things that I'm like, (gasps) like felt scandalous that I was like, well, I guess I'm just doubling down and making that part of the show i love it we're here for it it is what it is well disclaimer this episode will contain mentions of suicide and substance abuse so trigger warning for those who need it but also ghosts (laughs) (laughs) it's gail ladies and gentlemen oh i think gail was patreon that's right oh my god (laughs) Uh, here I am, 97 and ready to listen. 
Oh, oh God. Oh, Gail. Uh, that reminds me, I yesterday, so I'm only literally one episode in, but yesterday I started Dairy Girls. Oh, yeah. And there was someone who died, and they were like, how old was she? And they were like, oh, 98. And a guy without missing a beat just goes, ah, cut down in her prime. <laughs> I, fuck, I laughed. So, yeah, I, I get it. I'm... I'm only one in, but I'm on board. That's one of the shows that people like to constantly message me that I look like one of the people in. Who? I don't know. I don't want to hear it ever. I don't want to hear that I look like anybody. I want to look like me. <laughs> We're in a good place. It's gonna be a, it's gonna be a long <laughs> night. All right. <laughs> so. I usually try to give the information in a chronological order, but today I need to change it slightly for the sake of the story. So sit back, relax, and just trust my process. We're in for a real ride, regardless. Yes. So, Patricia Montendon, known as Pat, was born December 26, 1928, in Merkel, Texas. She was the seventh of eight children born to Charles and Myrtle Montendon. Charles was an evangelical minister who married Myrtle on April 7th, 1909, which just so happened to be Myrtle's 16th birthday. Uh. At the time, Charles was about a month away from turning 24. Uh. Which feels shocking since Myrtle was a child. Uh... But in the first of what I hope will be many in this episode, I give to you a, a hot goss side note. Ooh. And this is the moment that I stopped writing, went and wrote the synopsis, and then came back. I love this so much. So I put a lot of hope in those hot goss uh, constantly coming up. Uh, so Charles's father was Albert Montendon, born in July 1852. In December 1882, at the age of 30... Albert married 21-year-old Elizabeth Rust. Uh, between 1885 and 1895, Albert and Elizabeth had five children, including Charles, who would be Pat's father. But then Elizabeth died from unknown circumstances in 1896 at just 36 years old. The following year, in February, so I don't even know how long she was dead, but then Albert, who was 44, married a 27-year-old woman. And then they proceeded to have six children. Oh, my word. Which feels like a lot of children. Was any of this relevant to the story? No. No. Uh, but like I said earlier, this is a different kind of episode. And even now, I have no idea where this is going to take us. So, Charles and, and Myrtle get married in 1909. And over the next... Nearly 30 years, they had eight children. Wow. Yeah. The children included Carlos in December 1910, Nina in April 1913, Minnie in June 1916, Charles Jr. in July 1921, Vivian in December 1923, Betty in September 1926, Pat in December 1928, and James in December 1936. As a mother, 
I am absolutely exhausted after having three children in the span of 10 years. I cannot imagine how exhausting it would be to have eight children in 26 years. Tap Because out. 10 years between child one and child three, you are a completely different person. After 26 years, you've lived twice your life again. Tap out. Take a nap. Imagine. Take a oh, nap. I can't imagine. Uh, sadly, before Pat's death, the youngest Montandon, uh, Betty, died from a mastoid infection in February 1928. She was just 16 months old at the time. Pat was then born 10 months later, and her younger brother was born eight years after that. Which, again, okay, all the power to you. Uh, the children were all raised in the fundamentalist faith in a small town in Oklahoma. Pat said their mother Myrtle was, quote, tough as nails disciplinarian who showed very little to no emotion. Their father Charles, on the other hand, was, quote, the fire, hell, and brimstone preacher, while also being incredibly gentle and forward-thinking. Charles died in 1941 at the age of 56, when Pat was just 13 years old. A few years later, Pat moved to Dallas, where she became a junior model for Neiman Marcus at the age of 16. A year later, she married an Air Force officer named Howard Groves. Now, at some point in her youth, Pat was diagnosed with a heart condition. She was sent to uh, UCS, UCSF Health in San Francisco, which is known for innovative treatment and advanced technology. In 1947, Pat became the 10th person in the world to undergo successful heart surgery. Wow. Yeah. Uh, she was just 18 at the time. Pat spent the year before the surgery going back and forth to San Francisco. She ended up falling in love with the city and decided she wanted to move there someday. Pat's husband immediately said, nope, not interested. So they got divorced. Even though she didn't move for over a decade. <laughs> wow. Good for her. Yeah. But you know, you know. Uh, in 1948, Pat attended Oklahoma College for Women, which is now called the University of Science and Arts of Oklahoma. And in 1960, she finally made the leap and moved to San Francisco with no job, no contacts, and only about $400 to her name. Soon, though, she got a job at a clothing store, which turned into another job at a more high-end department store in Union Square. She was soon promoted to store manager, where she stayed until 1964. Oh no, what's this? Another hot goss side note. Hot goss side note. We're doing things we're doing right. Hot goss side note. You are the soundboard I always thought I needed. <laughs> yep. I don't I don't need one when I have you. Nope. Cause whatever aruga I'm gonna push is not gonna compete with that. Well. So there we go. So at some point during Pat's time as a sales girl, so like between 1960 and 1964, she spent a summer dating Frank Sinatra. Wowzer! Yeah, uh, based on Frank's track record, Pat definitely wasn't the only one at the time. 
Uh, I don't have time to get into all of Frank's exes or the fact that the majority were decades younger than him when he dated them. Uh, Like when Frank started dating Mia Farrow in 1964 when he was 51 and she was 21. They married two years later and then divorced two years after that. I didn't know Mia Farrow and Frank Sinatra were married. Yeah. Wow. Uh, The relationship uh, of Frank's that really creeped me out um, are like when he dated actress Venetia... Stevenson in 1957 when he was 42 and she was 19. Or, you know, how that same year, you know, when he was 42, he briefly dated actress uh, Jill St. John, who was 16. Nope. She was a child, uh, so I'm not going to call what they did dating, Uh, But they did end up reuniting after his divorce from Mia Farrow and then dated for three years. How old was she then? Um, Well, let's see. She was 16 in 1957. Uh, So they would have got together in like 1968. So she would have been in her mid to late 20s. All right. So still quite a gap. But but uh, legal, not teen, not a teenager, not a child, not a teen. What a concept. Correct. Yeah. Uh, Frank dated many famous women, including Natalie Wood and Marilyn Monroe. For more on those beautiful souls, check out episodes 37 and 40. Back to Patricia Montandon. After her time as a sales girl, she spent 1965 as a buyer for Saks Fifth Avenue Then in 1966, she became a lecturer, specifically on the topics of liberated women and the Soviet Union. Oh. Uh, Pat got married a second time to attorney Melvin Belly, who was known as the King of Torts. He was also well known for his celebrity clients, which included Zsa Zsa Gabor, Errol Flynn, Chuck Berry, Tammy Faye Baker, Mae West, Muhammad Ali, and the Rolling Stones. Melvin was also known for representing Jack Ruby pro bono after Ruby shot and killed Lee Harvey Oswald just two days after the JFK assassination. Melvin planned to prove that Ruby was legally insane, but in March 1964, Ruby was convicted of murder with malice and received the death penalty. So Melvin was fired by Ruby's family. In 1966, the conviction was overturned after Ruby's new lawyer claimed Ruby didn't get a fair trial. But before a retrial could happen, Jack Ruby died from cancer at the age of 55. So in 1969, a person claiming to be the Zodiac killer called San Francisco police to say that they would talk to Jim Dunbar, who hosted a radio morning show, but only if either Melvin Belly or F. Lee Bailey were on the call with him. F. Lee Bailey, of course, is another old man lawyer, most known for the O.J. Simpson trial and the Patty Hearst case. For more information on those cases, check out episodes 71 and 137, respectively. Melvin agreed to speak with the Zodiac killer. However, during the phone interview, the alleged killer... Uh, would only speak a few words and then hang up the phone. 
He did so 54 times during a two-hour conversation. Melvin uh, also allegedly received a letter from the Zodiac Killer that same day. Wow. But of course, the Zodiac Killer has never been caught that we know of. So we don't know if they actually were the person who sent him the letter or not. So Patricia Montandon and Melvin were married in a Shinto ceremony in Japan on October 12th, 1966. He was 59. She was 37. However, on November 18th, just 36 days later, both tried to have the marriage annulled. Months later, the marriage was declared null and void when it was discovered that Melvin had failed to register the marriage after the ceremony, which feels like a really odd mistake for an attorney to make. Yeah. Pat was Melvin's fourth wife, but not his last. He married again in 1972 and for the last time in 1960 or 1996, just months before his death. Around the time of their very quick marriage, Pat was becoming a highlight in the society pages. She was dubbed the Queen of San Francisco, um, San Francisco's Golden Girl. She became known for throwing flamboyant parties that drew celebrity crowds, including Danielle Steele and Andy Warhol. This sudden popularity led to Pat writing a column for the San Francisco Examiner and doing appearances on Ask the Expert on KCBS Radio. From 1966 to 69, Pat did a show called Pat's Prize Movie on ABC affiliate KGO. The show started simple, where Pat would just kind of introduce a movie that would then play on TV. Uh, But then she became popular enough, the station let her have like little speaking segments throughout the movie, including moments where she would take calls from viewers. In 1967, Pat was commissioned to write a book about her reputation for throwing parties. At the time, her popularity became so overwhelming, she was receiving 75 to 100 fan letters a day. To help keep everything, or to help keep up with everything, Pat decided to hire an assistant. She placed an ad in the newspaper for what she called a, quote, girl Friday and a friend. But due to the newspaper strike at the time, she only received five replies. Of the five, only one kind of seemed promising, so Pat reached out to 46-year-old Mary Louise Ward. Mary's husband had died a year earlier, leaving her with three children between the ages of 12 and 19. When they met, Pat and Mary instantly hit it off. They became thick as thieves. They even started calling each other Mary Lou and Patsy Lou you know, to each their own. Uh, Pat said that Mary answered her mail, kept her engagement straight, accompanied her on lecture tours, and had a gift for, quote, finding solutions to the insoluble problem. Mary also helped immensely with the release of Pat's book, How to Be a Party Girl, which came out in September 1968. More books would follow, including the memoirs, Oh, the Hell of It All, in 2007, and peeing on hot coals in 2014. I think I like this lady's style, to be honest. <laughs> she has a very specific style. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote down, look up how to be party girl. <laughs> 
Oh, I'm fascinated to know what she said for sure. Uh, in 1975, Pat released a book called The Intruders, which listed the strange occurrences that happened in Pat's house on Lombard Street, which we will get into shortly. After the book's release, Pat met Alfred Spalding Wilsley, a real estate investor and food company executive who took over his family's dairy business at just 17 years old following the death of his father. With the help of his brother, brother Jack, Alfred turned Wilsley Bennett Company into the biggest privately owned business in the Bay Area. They made edible oils, fats, margarine, and even became the first to manufacture individually wrapped packets of butter. How quaint. Yeah. After a brief romance, Pat and Alfred were married on May 14th, 1969. They welcomed a son, Sean Patrick Wilsley, on May 21st, 1970. Things seemed to be going fine until early 1980, when Alfred went to Pat one evening and said, and I quote, You don't know how to be married to a rich man. And then he left her. Which brings us to another hot goss side note. Hot goss side note. We're doing things. We're doing right. Hot goss side note. I could not be happier. So not only did Alfred leave Pat with zero warning. It turns out that at the time, Alfred was having an affair with Pat's best friend, Diane Traina known as Dee Dee. At the time, Alfred was 61, Pat was 52, and Dee Dee was 36. Oh, right. And John was 49. Who was John? Oh, it was just Dee Dee's husband at the time. Oh, boy. They had been married for 15 years and had two sons together. But after the affair, Alfred and Dee Dee decided to be together, so... Dee Dee and John divorced. Dee Dee and Alfred then got married in 1981, the same year that John married author Danielle Steele. Wowzer! Hot goss fun fact, Alfred had an affair with Danielle Steele before the affair with Dee Dee. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, a lot of things going on. Fun fact, Dee Dee, her great-grandfather... Create a Dow chemical. Hot goss fun fact. <laughs> I like that a lot. <laughs> Again, I, I, we warned them early. We did. This was gonna, this was gonna go in ways. Who knows? So, Pat said that Alfred went from a loving husband and father to a cold and calculating social climber after he had his affair with Dee Dee. Pat and Alfred's divorce got ugly, and it became the main focus of the gossip columns, which once sang Pat's praises. Now, during the divorce, they were tearing her apart. They called her the blonde dumbshell and pushy galore. Oh, God. Because she was requesting 57000 a month in alimony, which is equivalent to about 213000 in 2023. Pat suggested she needed 4800 a month for travel and expenses, 2500 for entertaining, 500 for flowers, 300 for opera and symphony, and 200 for a masseuse. 
Shockingly, the judge did not agree. And after a 68-day trial in December 1982, Pat was awarded $20,000 a month for eight years. They returned to court in September 1983, where Pat told a judge she was unable to survive on the $20,000 a month, uh, which is about $75,000 in 2023. Uh, she said that after paying $10,000 in federal income taxes and then $3,000 in loans that she had taken out to settle a $400,000 tax debt from other years, she was only left with about $7,000. She said the $7,000 was not enough to maintain the lifestyle she had become accustomed to during her decade-long marriage to Alfred. She once again suggested $57,000. The judge disagreed. Her alimony amount did not change. Alfred and Pat's son, Sean, said he believed Dee Dee was the greedy one, suggesting that Dee Dee only married his father for the money. In a memoir that Sean wrote in 2005 called... Oh, the glory of it all. He outright accuses Dee Dee of stealing his father from Pat and describes Dee Dee as, quote, she's my evil stepmother. She's an unbelievable cliche. Wow. Although he also claimed he asked if he could call Dee Dee mom, and she said no. Hmm. And while Sean may complain about Dee Dee and say things like she wouldn't let him watch TV and she was always really cold towards him. I have to mention a moment from his memoir that was unnecessary at best and easily the most shocking of the hot goss that I will present to you today. Hot goss. In <laughs> Thank you so much. In his memoir, which was released to the public when he was an adult... Sean admitted that while he did not like Dee Dee, and he thought the worst of her, when he was younger, Sean used to masturbate to photos <laughs> of her. And he even admitted to smelling her underwear. Hot goss TMI. That is editor, please. <laughs> Hello? Uh, Harper Collins? We have some thoughts. Um, that is... That is, wow. Okay. I did tell you this was going to go places you wouldn't expect. You know what? Honestly, I did not see that coming in a million years. And I'm yeah. here. I'm ready. And now I know. <laughs> now I know that we're going to go to some crazy places. Yeah. Yeah. God. Also, thank you for using your own song. <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to comment on that. My God, of course. <laughs> it's it's like you were it's like you tried to weird out yourself. <laughs> well, there's always a song, as we know. If you listen to this show of long enough, course. you know everything triggers a song in my head. And that was the first time I feel like I've said now I know. It was like it was organic. That was nice. It was nice. But was I do nice. think I just have to say, listen, I'm gonna skip ahead real quick. Normally I would talk about this at the end of the show, but like clearly he's angry at her because he wanted to be with her. I mean, it's very literal. Oh, sure. Anyway, I mean, it's just, it's the kind of thing you have to read like five times and go, did I really read that? Yeah. And then you're like, did I pass out and have a fever dream? No, no. Release to the public. Oh, wow. uh, I don't 
have any other words on that particular subject, but I know that Sean had an incredibly difficult childhood, especially involving his parents' divorce. This is a direct quote from Sean's memoir. I'm 11, almost 12. Mom comes out of her bedroom in a long white nightgown and sits at the top of the steps overlooking the city. She looks miserable, defeated. She asks me to sit down with her. We stare out at the view. Sean, she says, I'm going to kill myself tonight, and I want you to kill yourself with me. <laughs> wow. We've had a lot in the last couple of minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Now, Pat denies that that conversation ever happened and then published her own memoir in 2007 to give her side of the story. She called it, Oh, the Hell of It All, which I would remind you, Sean's book was called, Oh, the Glory of It All. Uh, in his book, Sean described his mother as gorgeous and self-involved, his father increasingly distant. An example uh, was how Alfred and Dee Dee would send Christmas cards with photos of them with Dee Dee's two sons. And never a photo with, you know, Sean included. Oh, God. Gross. Yeah, which is horrifying. Uh, Pat admitted that the divorce left her broken and depressed because despite the fact that her husband left her for her best friend... Pat was somehow the one who was ostracized in society and fully ridiculed by the press. When gossip columnist Herb Kane was especially mean about Pat and his column, Alfred would respond by sending Herb cases of champagne, which is just fucking gross. It is. Um, especially when Pat was described as hopelessly naive by the same people who said that Alfred was, quote, a man of great principle and integrity. Get the fuck out. Get out. Uh, Dee Dee and Alfred, 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 Jesus. <laughs> Dee Dee and Alfred remained together until Alfred's death in 2002 at the age of 82, which feels like an awkward time for another hot goss side note. Hot goss side note, we're doing things, we're doing right. <laughs> oh, I like that. Doing right. That one had a little like, stank on it. You know I, I mean? liked the stank. Thank you. I always like the stank. You know that. But that felt like we were doing a a talk show in the nineties, and it. Oh, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. That had that feel to it, and I liked it a lot. So I can't believe I'm saying this after hot goss, but in Alfred's obituary, <laughs> which I assume was written by Dee Dee. For some reason, it mentions Alfred's previous wives. Like it said, Alfred, husband to uh, Dee Dee. But then it also said, quote, the former husband of Doris and Lorraine. To be clear, Alfred was married a total of four times. So the fact that Pat was the only ex-wife missing from that obituary feels like a massive fuck you from Dee Dee. Yeah. Especially when it is not customary to mention ex-spouses in an obituary. So, I mean, to be clear, maybe other people do it, but that was the first time I've ever seen it. And Same. I've read through a lot of obituaries in, in my, in my nosy, yeah. nosy time. So 
The divorce throws Pat into a deep depression, and she starts to see a psychotherapist at Berkeley who helped pull her out of it. But during one session, Pat says she had a vision that the world was going to be destroyed by a nuclear holocaust, which is so Linda Hamilton. I couldn't be more happy for her. Uh, So in 1982, she founded an international peace foundation called Children as Teachers of Peace. Through the foundation, Pat took groups of children to foreign countries to meet with prime ministers and dignitaries, even took a trip to the Vatican to meet the Pope. The children delivered letters written by children around the world, urging the end to nuclear proliferation. Pat ended up being nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize three years in a row, starting in 1987. She was also awarded a Peace Messenger Award by the United Nations. Wow. So even though we're having a glorious time gossiping about fancy rich people and why are we discussing these fancy rich people and this particular story today? Well, to get into that, we have to jump back in time to December 1960, when Pat moved into an apartment on Lombard Street. The street was built in 1853 to connect the Russian Hill neighborhood with downtown San Francisco. In the early 19th century, that area was the home of a cemetery for Russian soldiers and the site of public hangings. The street was named after Lombard Street in Philadelphia. So, of course, you know I have to shout out my boys in orange, the Philadelphia Flyers. Uh, This season marks my 26th anniversary of loving the team. I offer that for absolutely no reason. So Lombard Street is incredibly steep, potentially one of the steepest in the world. So when vehicles were invented, a winding section of street was added with eight hairpin turns to make it safer for traffic. The section is roughly 600 feet long and paved with red bricks. It is a one-way street and the speed limit is like five miles per hour. At the bottom of the street is 1000 Lombard Street, a three-floor family home built in 1909 by an attorney and his wife. In 1949, the building was split into three apartments. Pat moved into one of the apartments on December 27, 1960. She described it as a welcoming haven. In early 1968, Pat was living her best life with a successful career and a reputation for throwing elaborate parties. Pat said, quote, I was happy in all aspects of my life at once. Every side of it seemed touched with success. At the time, Pat was preparing for the reason uh, or was preparing for uh, writing her book, How to Be a Party Girl. So her and her assistant, Mary Ward, decided, what else do you do while you're preparing for that book? Will you throw a party? They decided to go with an astrology and occult theme because Pat said, quote, astrology was very much the fad. And while I didn't believe a word to it, it was undeniably topical. Pat's apartment was decked out with orange, green, and pink panels with zodiac signs near the entrance, which tied nicely with her theme, which also included a crystal ball gazer, a palmist, an astrologer, and a tarot card reader who was recommended to Pat by a friend. The tarot reader, whose name has never been stated publicly, 
made a very grand entrance, despite being hours late. The reader wore a green velvet suit with feathers, and he had a fierce red beard. He also arrived with three or four uninvited guests in tow. When he arrived, Pat made her way over to introduce herself, and she said that he, quote, regarded his presence as an immense favor. The tarot reader asked Pat to get her a drink, or to get him a drink. So Pat went off to get one, but as she made her way to the bar, she kept getting caught up in multiple conversations, and by the time she returned to the tarot reader, 30 minutes later, 30, Pat had completely forgotten about the drink. Pat said the tarot reader was, quote, quivering with rage. He directed a stream of abuse at me. He had never been treated so rudely. I was an insufferable, ungracious hostess, and he was leaving. After 30 minutes? You also brought four people with you. It's also... Ask one of them to When come. you're hosting, like, you can't, like... Yeah, that ha- like that's it's very easy to get caught up for that amount of time if you're hosting a party. My God, I just found it wild. Thirty minutes, anyhow. Yeah. The tarot reader glared at Pat and said, "And I quote: I lay a curse upon you and this house. I do not forget, and I do not forgive. Remember that." Oh my God. That, yeah. Sorry, I, that, no. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I, listen, if you've listened to the show long enough, you know, like, I don't mess with that kind of stuff. Like, if someone said that to me, I would be, like, destroyed. Like, that is terrifying. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, seems to me that, because that's what's bringing us into the break, it's about to get more intense. Things are taking a turn. All right, well, listen, hit the can, grab another drink. I'm going to fill up on wine, and we'll be back with more on the Lombard Street haunting episode of True Crime and Cocktails. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We are, of course, discussing Lombard Street haunting 
hot goss side note. We're doing things. We're doing right. <laughs> that had even more stank on it. Oh, the the later we get, the more stank comes out, and I couldn't be happier. I'd go so far as to say, the later we go, the more further back in time you get. Yeah. Because, like, I think it get, gets, like, a little stankier closer to the 80s than it did closer to the 2000s. Oh, we're in you know full I mean? blue blue cheese stank at this point. You know what I mean? Like, I like it stanks. I like the lot. <laughs> I like that. Did you get a drink? I just got another Coke. Great. I, uh, I've had more wine. <laughs> I love that. Anyway, before the break, you truly chilled me to my core where this tarot card reader cursed Pat and the home. Again, this is not anything to be trifled with. What's next? Well, in the weeks following the party, the tarot reader contacted the newspapers to complain about Pat and say how badly she treated him again. He waited 30 minutes for a drink, and she was like, I'm so sorry. And he was like, not good enough. I don't know what voice that was. It felt vaguely like vampire adjacent. (laughs) Not good enough. Uh, uh. Oh, sure. But probably more like um, three men and a baby, like Jack doing a vampire. Which he did in that butter commercial. (laughs) Or was that in three men and a little lady? Doesn't matter. Not the point at all. So it's three men and a little lady because she's going to, she has a meeting or an interview to get into school and he shows up to the interview dressed in the full margarine vampire outfit, whatever, (laughs) whatever it is. Anyhow, those tips are for free. (laughs) Not a tip. (laughs) Those tips are for free. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I've fully lost my mind so if contacting the papers wasn't enough this tarot reader also contacted pat's friends to tell them how awful he thought she was he then started calling pat herself he said quote i've cursed your place you're going to have a very unhappy life there i'll never allow you a moment's peace or happiness jesus two weeks after the party Pat returned home to find the front door to the foyer unlocked, which was unusual because she always kept it deadbolted. The door to her living room was ajar, and when Pat stepped further inside, she discovered her apartment had been ransacked. Jewelry, a mink coat, a TV, and a tiger skin rug were all missing. Pat installed two more deadbolts to the front door and then a set on the French doors that lead to the balcony, even though it had a 15-foot drop. Two days after the break-in, Pat woke at 2 a.m. to an unfamiliar whimpering sound. She found that her Lhasa Apso puppy named Dog, yes, she named her dog Dog, um, who normally slept on an enclosed back porch, was scratching frantically to get in. This started happening every night around 2 a.m. Dog would bark incessantly at seemingly nothing, become incredibly agitated, and it got so bad where he would start gnawing at his own fur. 
He cowered under furniture, he urinated everywhere, he would run around with his tail between his legs as though he was terrified, he developed unexplained sores all over his body. Pat believed that Dog was, quote, terrorized by the aura of malevolence that fell over the house. Despite being checked by multiple vets, none could find anything physically wrong with the dog. Eventually, Pat was forced to give the dog to a friend. And as soon as the dog started living in another house, it just went completely back to normal, as though nothing had ever happened. Interesting. But the strangeness didn't end with dog. Soon after, a chill fell over the apartment, despite setting the thermostat at 90 Fahrenheit, or about 32 Celsius, Pat and her assistant Mary had to wear coats inside. There was a horrific smell that seemed to linger throughout the entire building, except for in Pat's bedroom. Uh, the apartment had two radiators in the living room, a third in the hallway, and a fourth in the foyer. When the landlord checked, all four were in perfect working order, as was the boiler. He checked the boiler on three separate occasions. Each time, it was working perfectly fine, but they could not get the temperature up in her apartment. Pat also started hearing strange noises like cackling and random screams at random times throughout the day when no one else was around. She heard footsteps coming up the stairs only to find no one there. Every morning she would wake up to the song Mockingbird Hill by Patty Page on repeat for two hours. Pat's cousin Carolyn, a young woman in her early 20s who lived with Pat at the Lombard apartment for a few months, also heard the song, and Carolyn said she even continued to hear it every day after she moved out. Rooms or room doors throughout the house would mysteriously lock from the inside when the room was empty. Pat would lock every door and window at night only to wake the next morning and find everything unlocked and open. Even Pat's car suffered strange occurrences. One night, some men drove down that winding street at a high speed. They wrapped their car around a telegraph pole. Pat's car was destroyed in the process. The day after she got it repaired, she came outside and found that her windshield was shattered. Weeks later, her car was stolen and found abandoned a few blocks away, but nothing was taken from inside the car. And it wasn't just Pat's car. When she started seeing a doctor named Warren Arnold, he started experiencing things as well. One night, medical papers were stolen from his car. Another night, air was let out of his tires. And then on another night, which is something I've never heard before, he came out to find his car was completely covered in ketchup and mustard. Hmm. Huh. Uh, when his car was pushed downhill, hitting four other cars on the way, Warren decided to end the relationship. Whoa. Pat then started dating a man named Earl Raymond. On one occasion, Earl came to the apartment, touched the living room walls, and then he started to pace back and forth frantically before collapsing on a nearby sofa and just immediately fell asleep. It was never said why he felt the need to touch the walls in the first place. 
I don't know what that was about. But on another night, Earl invited Pat out to some big fancy dinner that had like 80 people. There was catering. There was a 12-piece orchestra. And during the meal, Earl stood up to say he wanted to propose a toast. He said, and I quote, Pat's been hearing voices lately, and I think I can help her. I'm going to perform an exorcism. Earl then pulled a small black book out of his pocket, read a few lines of just pure gibberish, then dipped his fingers into his wine glass and used them to draw a cross on Pat's forehead. And no, I don't know what Earl's deal was. <laughs> then partway through that evening, while Pat and Earl were dancing together, Earl just walked off in the middle of a song, (laughs) went to another woman and told her how much he wanted to fuck her. I'm sure he actually said like how much he wanted to have sex with her, but I thought that fuck would be much more. It it took me punctuation. It took me off guard. It took me off guard. It definitely (laughs) punctuated things as you were meant to. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. I'm glad that worked. Uh, Pat, at that moment, was like, you know what? I've had it. I'm going to go home. Uh, She asked a friend of hers to drive her home. Earl freaked the fuck out and insisted he be the one to drive Pat home. At this point, it's late. Pat was annoyed. It was pouring rain. So she said, fine, I'll just go with Earl. I just want to go home. Partway through the drive... Earl pulled the car over and started, like, hard groping Pat inappropriately. He then told her he wasn't going to let her go home and he was actually going to take her to a cabin at Lake Tahoe, whether she liked it or not. Oh, my God. She said no, so he locked the doors on the car so she couldn't get out. So then, quick thinking, she said, well, why don't you take me home so I can pack some winter clothes because it's going to be cold there. So he agreed, and he took her to her apartment, but as soon as she got out, she started running. He ran after her and then started strangling her on her front steps. Oh, my God, this poor woman. Yeah. Earl then ran into the house and locked himself in Pat's bedroom. She had to call the police to get him out. They found he had stripped the bed down to the sheets and was just sitting in the middle of her bed watching TV. Keeping in mind, it was raining that night, so he was soaking wet and had muddy shoes, and he was just sitting in the middle of her bed, which she then had to completely (laughs) take all the sheets off and, you know, remake the bed after he'd left, which I'm sure she was in no mood to do, because I'm not in the mood to do that on the best of days. After Earl left, Pat discovered a photo of herself under the bed. Someone, probably Earl, had stabbed the photo repeatedly with a pen and, like, gouged it and, like, really put score marks into it. Two days later, Pat came down with pneumonia. From the best I can tell, she never saw Earl again. And sadly, I don't know what happened to him. In the 
September 1968 issue of TV Guide, there was a listing that mentioned Pat appearing on the Pat Michaels show. The listing read, Channel 2, Pat Montendon, from Party Girl to Call Girl. (laughs) People from TV Guide claimed the show was going to have an anonymous sex worker on the show after Pat, so the synopsis was meant to convey both women. However, it didn't come across that way. And it seemed like they were really implying that Pat was now a sex worker, which at the time had a very large stigma attached to it. Pat sued TV Guide, and the first trial ended in a mistrial after the jury failed to reach a verdict. A second jury found in Pat's favor in June 1972 and decided she was owed $151,000 in damages. But of course, the press was all over this and wrote headlines like, quote, Pat's in a snit, which is wildly unfair. There is nothing wrong with being a sex worker, for the record. But in 1968, something like that could ruin the reputation of someone who made their living off public appearances. Yes. And fame. Pat then, uh, oh, I'll, Pat then also, um, started receiving harassing and obscene phone calls at home. Someone wrote the words call girl in red lipstick on her dressing room mirror at the studio. She received a ton of hate mail about it, including a used sanitary napkin. I guarantee if a man was being harassed like that, no media outlet would consider the man's response to be a snit. Also, I fucking hate the word snit. It grinds my gears. It's gross. It is. Two nights after filing that lawsuit, Pat woke up around 2.30 a.m. to find two casement windows wide open, even though no one had been in the apartment. After that, Pat started locking herself in her own bedroom just to try and sleep. I also find it interesting how often the number two keeps coming up. Like the break-in happened two weeks after the tarot reader cursed the house. Pat responded to the break-in by adding two extra locks to the front door. Two days after the break-in, the dog starts freaking out every night at 2 a.m. She wakes up and finds two windows open. The issue of TV Guide about the show she was on was going to be on Channel 2. It might be nothing, it just seems like a lot of coincidences to me. Uh, While strange things were happening to Pat, her career was still expanding with TV and personal appearances, so she ended up needing to hire a second assistant. That would be assistant number two. Great point. For us keeping track of numbers. Uh, Pat chose a woman in her 20s named Vera Lee Scott, who moved into Carolyn's old room on Lombard Street because... Pat's cousin Carolyn had recently moved to Hawaii. Pat then decided to keep with her current success and throw another party. This time, the theme was Maharishi, featuring gurus and meditation. Vera and Mary helped Pat with the preparations, but throughout the party, Pat said she had a really, a real like sense of unease. 
She said, quote, I had the feeling there was something ugly, something evil all around me, a presence I could almost touch. Two hours after the party started, someone yelled fire as flames began to shoot up from the awning on the balcony outside. The blaze was quickly put out with a garden hose and a fire extinguisher, and in all the confusion, no one thought to call the fire department. So thank God it was put out as quickly as it was. Another two. There are also two year, two hours. Two yeah. hours. Yeah, two hours into the party, there's a fire. Again, another number two. And while we're at it, Pat was born on 26-12-1928. Each portion of that date has a two in it. And I know I'm starting to sound like Jim Carrey <laughs> from the number 23, but for real, it just feels like too many coincidences. Too many. Point. Thank you so much. So Pat became fearful of the house, and she couldn't shake the feeling like someone or something was there at night, even when she was alone. She admitted to being scared, even though she said, quote, I've never been a fearful person. I've always been critical of people who are fearful. But the strange coincidences quickly turned Pat from a skeptic into a believer because the events in the house did not stop. Doors and windows that were locked when Pat went to bed would all be unlocked and opened the following morning. Pat was constantly woken at 2 a.m. by footsteps or what she described as mournful screaming. The temperature remained frigid, which Pat said, quote, brought a pervasive sense of gloom and depression. She went into an emotional and physical tailspin. She and Mary started suffering from bouts of dizziness, fainting spells, headaches, nausea, and disorientation. Pat told Mary she believed there was something wrong in the house and that there was like a really evil force in her life. Mary said she felt it too. When they left on town on a promotional book tour, Pat's health got better, but her symptoms returned the moment she returned home. A doctor gave Pat a prescription to help her with pains, but it did nothing to prevent the dizziness or her occasional fainting. One night while suffering from a respiratory infection, she got so sick that she believed that she felt some sort of presence as she was bending over her bathroom sink. And she became so overwhelmed that she ended up crawling across her floor to her phone and called her then-boyfriend, Alfred Wilsley, and she told him she outright thought she was dying. Alfred called the police, who arrived at the home to discover Pat unconscious. Newspapers, of course, speculated that Pat either overdosed on pills or attempted to take her own life. Of course, there was no mention of the dizziness or the fainting spells that she had been suffering from. Pat tried to redecorate the entire apartment, but nothing made it feel any different. Pat believed the tarot reader's curse had caused all these problems. Mary said she didn't think the curse was, or that the tarot reader was completely to blame. She said, quote, I think it was already there, and maybe his influence just called it out. When Pat asked a friend named Merla Zellerbeck about the apartment, Merla said, quote, being the world's greatest skeptic, I have little faith in ghosts, spirits, and the like. 
nor do I believe your apartment is in any way haunted. But I will say it always gave me the creeps for a reason I will never understand. Another friend of Pat's named Olympia Martin said, quote, I felt uncomfortable in that house and preferred not to go there again. So Pat reached out to Fritzy Armstrong, the woman who did astrology at that party that should not be named, uh, to ask her opinion on the curse. Fritzy said, well, the night of that party, when she was leaving the building, she fell down the stairs and was so badly injured that a cab driver had to carry her up to her apartment. Fritzy ended up suffering from intense pain for the next year following that party. Wow. Uh, so Fritzy was 100% on board, determined to figure out what was going on in this apartment. She offered to do a reading of the apartment because Fr Fritzy ran the metaphysical town hall bookshop slash astrology school. According to Fritzy's report, the vibrations of the apartment were off. Um, I have a few quotes directly from the report. Quote, The planet Uranus is very strongly in evidence through this period. Uranus brings the unpredictable. Quote, Suicides are strongly indicated due to the fact that the planet Neptune is very strongly involved. And finally, quote, the ray of Uranus and the strong, strong configuration of Neptune put you into the depths and make you a potential victim. And while that might have seemed like the ideal time to run, it wasn't until some issues with her upstairs neighbors that made Pat decide it was truly time to go. A group of what Pat described as hippies moved into apartment three right above Pat's. And according to one of her memoirs, Pat definitely had a bit of a bias against hippies because she wrote, quote, I didn't want anything to do with the hippies. Such slovenly characters. <laughs> wow. She was a much older woman when she wrote that. Of course. But not giving her any pass on it, but you know what I mean. But according to Pat, once these new tenants moved in, the hallways and balconies were always covered in spit and cigarette butts, even though they were constantly being cleaned. They covered the walls with graffiti that included obscenities and strange symbols. Pat said she heard screams, pained moaning, and loud sobbing coming from that apartment every single night. One night, she saw a mysterious blood-like stain appear on the white ceiling and then immediately disappear. She called the police and her landlord. The upstairs neighbors were evicted. Turns out that they had absolutely trashed the apartment. There, were, there was a pile of broken furniture in the middle of the living room that looked like they had tried to set it on fire. The police said that it looked ritualistic in some way. Uh, after that, Pat's doorbell would ring at all hours throughout the night. And when she looked outside, she would see faces pressed against her window, which is horrifying. Chilling. Oh, my Think God. About. 
Uh, And that was Pat's official sign to get out of Dodge, because in mid-June 1969, she moved into a new place on Webster Street with Alfred, as she she was dating him at the time. Um, However, shortly before that move, Pat had signed a year-long lease on the Lombard apartment, so her friend-slash-assistant, Mary, asked if she could stay at the apartment because Mary's daughter had recently gotten married, and Mary wanted to give the newlyweds some space, which was very beautiful, because it was Mary's own home, and she was like, I will back up, I will go stay somewhere else. Just one week after Pat moved out, she was woken by a phone call at 4.01 a.m. on June 21st. The police were informing Pat that there had been a fire at the Lombard apartment and they had found a female body. The body was not immediately identifiable, so the police called Pat to ask if she knew who the victim might be. Pat quickly called Mary but got no answer, so she knew that Mary was in fact the victim. Mary was 47 at the time of her death. She was found in the master bedroom in prone position lying face down on the bed. She suffered third and fourth degree burns, the worst to her lower extremities. However, her cause of death was not immediately known. According to the autopsy, all of Mary's internal organs were undamaged and healthy. The carbon dioxide level in her lungs was so low that the doctor described it as, quote, less than what you get from standing on a street corner. There were no signs of suffocation. There was no smoke found in her lungs, which means Mary was dead before that fire even began. Based on the tox panel, it is believed that Mary had a glass of wine and a sleeping pill before going to bed. However, from the best the coroner can tell, neither contributed to Mary's death. After a full autopsy and an inquest into Mary's death, the coroner said, quote, We have examined Mary Louise Ward as carefully as we know how and at great length, and we cannot establish any reason for her death. We don't know why she died. As for the fire, it likely started around 2.30 a.m. It was reported by an upstairs tenant at 2.55 a.m., The fire burned in a V-shape going out from the closet to the bed. At first, the fire inspector believed the blaze was caused by a cigarette, but Mary didn't smoke, and no one was in the apartment with her uh, on the night she died. The windows and doors to the room were locked, so it would not have been possible for anyone to be in that room with her after she died. After that, it was suggested the fire was maybe caused by faulty wiring. There was a TV in the bedroom that was plugged into an outlet that was in the closet. Since the fire originated in the closet, maybe the outlet was the cause. A fire inspector report a fire inspector report stated that the wiring near the outlet was spliced and it could have overheated and caused a blown fuse in the small fuse box that was in the hallway. They recommended that the landlord rewire the entire building. At an inquest into the fire, George Lucas, 
the uh, inspector for the San Francisco police or fire department, not the Star Wars guy. Oh. Um, he told, I know, that would have been a fun twist. Um, he told the, a jury that he investigated the Lombard fire, but he was unable to determine the exact cause of the fire. George then sent Pat a letter saying, quote, I personally went back to the apartment on my own several times to try and solve the mystery there. In my 22 years as a member of the fire department, I have had lots of experience of death by fire. There was something about this one that just wasn't right. But the fire wasn't the end of tragedies involving Pat's loved ones. In the year following the Lombard fire, both Pat's cousin Carolyn and Pat's second assistant, Vera, took their own lives. Whoa. They were both in their 20s at the time of their deaths. Sadly, there is not much information about either woman available publicly. But both had spent time living at the Lombard apartment after the alleged curse was made. Is there a connection to the apartment and the curse? I don't know, but all three women died within three years of that curse being made. Pat struggled to come to terms with it all, and while on a trip to Hawaii in November 1972, Pat met a psychic named Jerry Patton. Jerry said she was into psychometricing, which is reading a psychic vibration through an object or through physical contact with a person. Uh, Using a pearl ring that Pat was wearing at the time, Jerry offered to do a reading. Uh, The ring had been given to Pat in 1965 by, quote, a man who proved to be a very negative influence in her life. So while holding the ring, Jerry suggested that Pat lived in an apartment up a lot of steps, which was way off. But then... Jerry went on to describe the exact layout of Pat's home, complete with the fact that the entryway had a marble floor. And then Jerry said, quote, someone was killed there. Pat thought about Jerry's reading a lot over the next few months. And in September 1973, Pat reached out to Jerry to ask to be put in touch with someone with psychic ability who would be willing to walk through her old apartment. Jerry recommended Frank Nocerino, known as Nick, a self-described secular exorcist who was the founder and director of the Institute of Psychic and Hypnotic Services, as well as the Society of Crystal Skulls International. I am embarrassed to say I did not, I do not know of any crystal skull outside of Indiana Jones. Thank you. Whatever I can do. So, Pat then contacted the current owners of the apartment. They fully agreed to a full psychic investigation. So on September 15th, 1973, a group gathered to investigate 1000 Lombard Street. The group included psychics Jerry and Nick, the new owners of the apartment, James and Phyllis Riley, Pat, and her friend, Alan Carr, 
who was not only the writer of the movie Grease, but more importantly, he was the producer of Grease 2. And I know that it's terrible, but let me have my silly, campy, inappropriate show about 30-year-olds trying to pass themselves off as thirsty teens. It brings me joy, and isn't that all that matters at this point in life? I think so. I also didn't think there'd be a reason to bring up Grease 2, but bless them for giving me a reason. Oh, 100%. So... This group of six went through Pat's old apartment. Nick took photos. They used an audio recording to capture their thoughts and feelings in real time. Jerry said she could feel two separate forces and that at one time it felt like she was being pushed down the stairs. Nick said he felt like he was being drawn down to the floor and at times he felt an intense pressure on the back of his head. When they checked the master bedroom... Despite the furniture and the room being completely different and rearranged from when Pat lived there, Jerry went to the exact spot where Mary died without previous knowledge as to where the bed had been, and she said suddenly she felt too hot to be in that room. When Nick went into the enclosed porch where Pat's dog used to sleep, he said he felt incredibly dizzy He noted a sweet smell like lilac or violet and an overpowering feeling. Nick then became overwhelmed with sadness and just openly started crying. Uh, He said he couldn't explain why. He later said, quote, I was there with somebody, but I was alone when I went to the floor. He added that in that moment, he suddenly felt incredibly depressed and hopeless. Nick also said he sensed, quote, Definitely a male in the bedroom seemed to be a violent one. When Nick developed the photos that he had taken, he noted large, vague blotches on the photos from the enclosed porch. There also seemed to be a female ghostly figure that didn't match any of the three women who were present at the time the photos were taken. Some of the photos had huge swaths of purple across them and jagged patterns of light. When Pat first saw the photos, she was incredibly skeptical, so she requested to have the photos reprinted, but said she wanted to be there for the full process to watch it happen, but the photos turned out the exact same way the second time, even with her there. In Nick's final report to Pat, he said he felt energy spots as well as hot and cold spots throughout the apartment. He said he could feel people in the building even though nobody was physically there. Nick noted auras of red, gray, and black throughout the place and said that wherever Pat would walk, red would increase. Nick also suggested that Pat sell the pearl ring um, as it had negative vibrations attached to it. That would be the same ring that Jerry used to give the reading in Hawaii 10 months earlier. Uh, Nick's final note wrote, read, quote, You are and will be protected from anything in the house by an exorcism that my group and I have done from a distance and from the symbols left behind in the house itself. I can uh, only again suggest you do not go there if at all possible. In particular, never go alone. 
After Nick's report, Pat was more determined than ever to look into the history of the building. She started by looking into a series of names that Nick and Jerry had said while walking through the space. Pat found that 80% of the names that Jerry said were somehow linked to the building. For example, Jerry said the name DeLuca. It turns out a previous tenant had him made with the last name DeLuca. Jerry said the name Ralph, a former tenant who was pregnant when she lived in the building but moved before she gave birth, named that child Ralph. During her research into the building, Pat discovered that five couples who had lived in the building divorced shortly after moving in, and another five tenants struggled with alcoholism. One particular female tenant who struggled with alcohol became incredibly depressed while living on Lombard. According to neighbors, the woman would listen to the song Mockingbird Hill on repeat for days before she took her own life. Wow. As you may recall, that is the very same song that Pat and her cousin Carolyn heard in the apartment, even though no music was being played. Prior to her death, Carolyn told Pat that even after moving out of the apartment, Carolyn continued to hear that song every day before she also took her own life. A former tenant named Emily said she never liked the feeling inside the apartment. She said she was once nearly electrocuted by a portable dishwasher. Another uh, tenant named James became so gravely ill living there that he was suddenly unable to work. Doctors were unable to determine what was wrong with him. Another former tenant named Joanna said she loved living in the apartment. It was the only happy time in her marriage. However, she did have to admit while living there, she got so sick she lost 5 to 10 pounds in a single week. No doctor was ever able to determine what was wrong with her. And even after she moved, um, she has still never fully recovered from living there. But not all the past tenants disliked the place. A woman named Fanny Taylor lived in the building with her husband, Leonard, from 1950 to 1956. When Pat spoke with her, Fanny said nothing negative ever happened, and everything that happened to Pat was simply a result of Pat's hyperactive imagination. Pat then quickly suggested, or Fanny then quickly suggested that Pat just stop looking into the history of the house. Which feels like Fanny knows more than she's saying. Yeah. Or I've been doing this show for too long and I'm skeptical of anyone, even elderly women named Fanny. I'd say especially elderly women named Fanny. Right? Mm -hmm. It's always the ones you think it's not. Fanny's husband, Leonard, died in the building, although, from best I can tell, it was from natural causes. Vernon Cranston and his wife, Sophie, who had the house built in 1909, also both died of natural causes in the building. And yes, I know it's a fairly common occurrence, According to the National Library of Medicine, at the turn of the 20th century, most deaths in the United States occurred at home. But by the 1960s, more than 70% of deaths occurred in some sort of institutional setting. In 2017, the percentage of people dying at home is about maybe 31%. But Pat's ex-landlord, 
owned the building from 1957 to 1973, he said while Pat lived there for nine years, she only ever made complaints in the last two years, and her biggest issue was the lack of heat. The landlord said he checked the heating multiple times, but never found an issue. The landlord sold 1000 Lombard Street in 1973 for $150,000, which is equivalent to about a million in 2023. He said, quote, that building surely was a voodoo for me. It had a hex on it. I had more trouble than I've ever had in my life. It was hard to unload. I was glad I finally sold it. The next time the building sold was in 2019 when it sold for $5.1 million. Patricia Montandon is the author of five books and six plays. In 1973, Pat founded a local woman's roundtable and the Name Choice Center. In 1979, she founded the Napa Valley Wine Auction. Later in life, Pat became an ambassador for peace, founding numerous charitable foundations for causes such as women's rights, gun control, and climate activism. In 2008, she won a Woman of Distinction Award from Northwood University of Michigan. As of this record, Pat, who is 94, continues to host roundtable luncheons for charity at her home in Beverly Hills. She is the last surviving Mont and Don sibling as the other six passed away between 1995 and 2010. As of October 2023, Mary Ward's cause of death remains unknown. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm Christy Oxborough. Yes, I know we're doing things, we did them right. Are you going to do a gospel album? Because I'm starting to think you should. <laughs> that reminds me of the moment in The Simpsons where Bart is helping Lisa learn how to walk in heels to be in a pageant. She's like, do you think I could win? And he's like, I'm starting to think I could win. Because um, he was so good at the most. Anyway. Of course. Um, wowzer. There is so much to dig into here. Let's take one more br- one more break. One more break. Doing great. Grab a drink, hit the can, and we ra- we'll be back to wrap it up on Lombard Street Haunting on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome 
Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing Lombard Street haunting. What a tale! Yeah. <laughs> we went on a bit of a ride. Wowzer! Wowzer! This chilled me to my core as someone who feels very, very, you know, firmly about spirits, energies, all of the above. Sure. Yeah. Don't love it. Don't love it. Um, wild. Tenth person in the world. To have successful heart surgery. Right? Interesting. Um, I like the term murder with malice. Sometimes it's murder with what? Non-malice, I guess? Uh, it's tough to say. Tough yeah. to say. Uh, put an ad out looking for a girl Friday and a friend. She got five responses. Only one of them seemed promising. Sounds like online dating had begun before any of us knew. <laughs> Though those yeah. odds are a lot better. Five responses and only one seemed promising. That's a much better ratio than where I feel it is now. Um, sure. Alfred Wilsey, the family uh, created individual packets of butter. And to that I say, thank you, Wilsey family, for creating something that all of us have put under our armpits or under our legs or in our elbows to try and heat up so that it will become soft enough to spread. What a legacy. Yeah, look, I'm here for it. A greasy legacy. <laughs> this is where things start to take a turn. Oh, here is. Okay. <laughs> so... Um, he married Pat, but then left her after having an affair with her friend Dee Dee, who was Pat's friend and a much younger woman. Wow. Seems like the scandal of their time. Hey. Hey-o. And I get that. And because of me, and I'm glad. Because of you. What I like is that Pat asked for $200,000 a month in alimony, and she got twenty k. To that I say, doesn't hurt to ask. Oh, Sure. You s- tried to say Alfred, then you said Alfred, and I wrote down Alfred plea, which always makes me think of the staircase. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a case that to this day just still, oh yeah, irks me in a way. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that she has a vision of a nuclear holocaust and then decides to um, start a peace organization that... Wins her three Nobel Peace Prize nominations. Peace Prize nominations. Wowzer. That's someone yeah. taking it all away. But you know what? I'm going to go there for a second. Having that vision of the nuclear, um, the nuclear holocaust, I think could be a sign that there. And I don't know where that falls into the like order of her of the haunting, but depending on where it is. I absolutely think that that could be connected. Sure. That's not exactly just like a light, you know? Yeah. Typical dream. Yeah. Um, and if it happened before the haunting technically did, then to that I say perhaps she was open. You know what I mean? Sure. I do believe it happened after. Because I believe the haunting was 68 and uh, or the curse specifically was 68 and the haunting stuff happened within the years after that. 
And it was 1980, 81-ish when she had the vision? I think that's connected. Um, Philadelphia makes you think of the Flyers. It makes me think of Flip, 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 Philadelphia. Always sunny. Wow. Okay. Yep. Uh, Now, the sounds of this original party, this astrology occult theme, right up my alley. Yeah. A palm reader, a tarot reader, a crystal ball reader. This sounds awesome. The details of this, though, have chilled me to my core. And I know what you're all thinking. Really, Lauren? This is the thing? Yeah, this is the thing. Somebody saying, I curse you and this home you live in, and then it, and then all these things happening? That's a living nightmare. Terrifying. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, too, because his behavior, how he contacted the newspapers to complain, contacting her friends, kept contacting her, doesn't make it feel like he's actually got power. Do you know what I mean? Like, it makes it feel like he's a fraud just based on his behavior. But then I also think there is something about, like, it's the same reason why I'm always like, you don't mess with this stuff. I'm like, is it just enough that this person said it? Like, he didn't actually know what power he was wielding, for example. Oh, sure. Like, I just don't think that you should be saying the words, I curse you in this home to anybody. Like, um, I'm also Probably curious. Not. I'm curious what his life was like after this. I am livid. That a name has not been given because I want to look him up. I want to know what's he up to. What's he been doing? Because I bet you there is a world in which if my theory is true that he didn't really know what he was doing, I bet you there's a world in which that his life had similar issues in it. Because oh. to me, I think it's like once you open the door, if you don't 100% know what you're doing... But there's also a world in which he absolutely knew what he was doing, and this was very deliberate, and he did not experience that. So, I don't know. Again, we offer all sorts of thoughts, theories, and feelings uh, in this part of the show. That's why they're here. Thank you very much. The Lhasa Apso puppy named Dog. First of all, don't care for the name. Sure. Second of all, he kept asking to come in. And you don't want to know what I wrote down. <laughs> Why was he out in the first place? Keep your dog in the fucking house. C-word was what I, what I wrote. <laughs> wow. That's where we're at. That's where we're at. Look, I. it's interesting to me because it feels definitely like considering the dog got out of there and then the behavior completely changed. Animals, I think, are very susceptible to energies. So I'm not saying that that's not a sign. I'm just saying in general especially a puppy, I don't think you should be leaving it outside the house. And I am unanimous in that. Oh, of course. Um, hearing a song play with no source for it to be coming from is chilling. Yeah. Uh, doors locking on their own, all of the shit that happened to her car. Like, this mm. is an insane story. My God. Yeah. The fact that the doctor, Dr. Ward Arnold, had issues after working with her and then literally was like, I can no longer work with you because of this. The fact that that guy Earl, it feels like he touched the walls of the house and then changed. Feels like potentially before then he right? was, yes, it felt like he was almost possessed. 
It's also wild to me to just walk into someone's house and just start touching their walls. Yep. Like, what's up with that? Not typical behavior. It's almost as though he was drawn to do it. Much like Amityville, if we remember that story. Sure. I mean, I know that what we remember is Ryan Reynolds shirtless. <laughs> it is. But. It is. He has a gift. <laughs> he does. <laughs> he has a body gift. Um, <laughs> stop it, Lauren. Anyway, uh, all of this stop. to say is that, again, I do think there is a possibility that that could have been a factor with Earl coming into the house. Sure. Um after he left, she found a stabbed photo of herself under the bed again, chilling. But the, to that I also say, what did she do with that photo? Is it possible that that was originally planted there by this original tarot person performing, I'm just going to say the spell, but putting the curse on? Is it also possible, like, did she check for hex bags? You know what I mean? Like, I'm being serious. How many times have we in our lives specifically since watching Supernatural, how many times has something gone on in our lives and the other one says, check your house for hex bags? Yeah. And we're complete earnest. Yeah. Because yeah. we don't mess with it. No. Doesn't matter what you believe or don't believe. It doesn't matter what is or isn't true. You don't tempt fate. You don't mess, don't mess with it. Take precautions. Take precautions. Yep. And also, I believe, too, if it's real for someone else, if it's real enough for someone else to make a hex bag, perception is reality. Yeah. I also think the way I just said, take precautions, is the most seagull sounding I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of it being the new <laughs> safe sex mascot. <laughs> it's a new condom brand and it's got a it's got an adorable okay. seagull mascot going precautions i like that we might have to work on it a little but i like it it'll only need tweaking yep before I, you I like tw- where we're started <laughs> i was gonna say before you tweak your tweaker oh no always take tweaker. precautions yep yep don't try and fight it nope i've already <laughs> named the mascot timmy <laughs> We come, in, we come in three sizes. Small, medium, and hog of a cock. <laughs> uh, that is your legacy. Um, <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, TV Guide listing it as from party girl to call girl. What a misstep. What a yeah. mistake. Yeah. What a mistake. I also hate the word snit. I love all the two synchronicities you found. That is also wild and chilling and feels... It's just insane, right? Yeah. Yep. I want to know what time did he curse the party? Great question. What time did he show up? What time did he curse it? Great question. Um, the fire broke out at two. Yeah. At this point, I would also be fearful of... I think I would have been fearful of the house before now, personally, but... For there, at this point, it's definitely pretty pretty for sure. Um, the fact that she would get sick, but then get better when she would go away, get out of the house, get out of the house. Oh, 
I also love that some of her skeptics, like this Merla woman who's like, oh, I don't believe in any of that, was like, I did feel weird in that house, which again, I'm like, that says it all. Oh, when a person who's like, oh, I'm incredibly skeptical, I don't like it. No. Like, that's that's big. Yep. Also, what was big was your pronunciation of Uranus. I I feel weird saying Uranus. <laughs> uh, listen, I, I just wrote down Uranus. It's not Uranus anymore. I'm a child. That's what is in my notes. Oh, I, I just, for the sake, because I'm a child, I can't, like, Uranus just does not sound serious to me. So I'm like, so I come with, I'm just like Captain Uranus, I guess, because <laughs> that feels better. I like that. Did you yeah. hear that before or did you make it up? Oh, no. I had heard people say it either way. So I thought it was acceptable, but I just decided one version is a professional version. One version is uh, for, you know, regular home usage. Um, not that I do anything professional on this show. I said hog of a cock. You could say Uranus for fuck's sakes. No, not because you, not if you don't want to. Not if it doesn't sit right with you. It feels it's it 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 irks me as much as snit. I like that. I always l- wanted to know why in Sailor Moon there was like Sailor Mercury, Sailor Saturn, Sailor Mars, but there was never Sailor Uranus. I think we know why. If only they'd gone with Uranus, it might not have been as bad. But yeah, then urine. I was just gonna say it still hangs. has like urine ass. Is that better? I oh, guess so. well, good P call. Butt. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me I'm wrong. Okay. You're not. Thank you. Um, the fact that she moved out and then the fire happened, killing Mary, but then Mary's autopsy showed that she didn't die in the fire. Well, then my question is, and I know that to this day there's like it's it's un, it's undetermined, but I'm like, did they look into like murder suspects? Like she had to die some way. It feels to me like they were like, ooh, spooky, weird. Let's leave it. Like they did. It seems like that was it because they were like, we can't figure out how she died. They just assume because the door was locked, that means she was the only one in the building. So. I don't think yeah. I need to explain to you. Not a full investigation. Um, I like that after all of this, it's like, maybe now I should have someone come into the house to do an exorcism. After all this. I appreciate she was even interested or willing at all. Yeah, good point. Um, The fact that the psychic... Jerry found the exact spot where Mary died without knowing and said she felt hot, chilled me to my core, ironically, heated me to my core, maybe I should say. Sure. Um, The fact that there was the photos taken, which Pat was skeptical of, so she watched a second second develop, they were exactly the same. I mean, the fact, again, that so many names that Jerry mentioned matched names connected to past tenants. I mean, every single detail of this case is more chilling than the last and i love that it turns into like in 2008 she won a woman of distinction award 
still yeah. no cause of death for Mary. Like, it's like, yeah, I definitely knew where I wanted to end it. And then I just didn't know what steps I was going to take once I got there. And then I was like, well, I guess we're just going for <laughs> It's interesting, though, because, that. because it feels like there's definitely something happening to the house. I think that goes without saying. But oh, this yeah. quote curse had also been put on her. So it's interesting that she continued to succeed and thrive. Right? Um, in some ways, but I mean, after Alfred, she hasn't been married since. So maybe it's a the curse, maybe professionally she was fine. But it just cursed her in other ways, maybe. Well, and it is, I'm sure, a much bigger curse if it's like this close friend of yours dies in the house in a fire, like, and you have to live with that. Oh, yeah. That's a burden. And a half. Um, very interesting. Yeah, I think the biggest question that I have is, well, there's two. One you don't know the answer to. One you might. The first, of course, is the identity of this tarot card reader oh i know because i'm also like so bad is it gonna be one of those things where it was like jeremiah well he died 30 years ago like you know what i mean like it was like was he even there oh i i have a lot of questions i find it interesting that she won't say because i assume she knows she must they were and i also want to know who recommended them because it was specifically said he was recommended by a friend of hers. Well, then that's another question. Was it already in the works, is my question. Was the curse already in the works? Was the friend Dee Dee? No, I'm not suggesting. No, I am suggesting it. I'm speculating. <laughs> but but I yeah. I think Dee Dee was, well, I don't know what Dee Dee was doing at that point. Well, but even if it wasn't her, like, my point being is that it's like, did someone have less than altruistic intentions? I mean, it's possible. Because it also doesn't make sense, like, to come into a party very late that you've been hired to work, you bring multiple people, you ask for a drink, and then when the person's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, I haven't got you that drink yet, they're like, I curse you and you're home, I will fuck with you for life. Like, it just... There's just a piece to it that almost feels like it's missing. Like, to me, if we were to find out that it was like, oh, this was a friend of hers that was trying to get revenge or whatever, and this was all part of it, like, that would be the extra missing piece for me, where it would it would make a little sure. bit more sense. Because it does feel like a kind of over-the-top reaction to yes. a small kind of situation. So, again... Yeah, that's my that's my question is, was this curse already in the works? Was his only intention in being there to, to, to make the curse? These are these are the kinds of things, right? It's more than possible. And then my second question is that you might know the answer to, how was this never made into a movie? I think the book that she wrote specifically about this, I think they tried to option it as a movie, but I think they just never really went ahead with it. Interesting. But, yeah. 
I mean, it, it absolutely sounds like a Lifetime movie. Oh, yes. If if nothing else, yes. Yeah. Remember the Lifetime movie we talked about about <laughs> about the woman who kept the the boy, the, the, the young man, the, in the boyfriend in her in the, in the attic? attic. Yeah, that's a wild one. I know we've talked about that on Patreon, haven't we? We did, but yeah. I. Th- I think we might, was that one of the Patreon episodes we put on the main feed? Maybe. It might have been. I remember. That's a wild, that's a wild story. But anyway, I digress. Yes. Um, Yeah, this is, this is a really interesting one because this stuff scares me. I mean, listen, everything, everything scares me. Um, Sure. You know, killers, all of the above. But yeah, when you start to get into the paranormal and putting curses on people and then the curses seeming to come true that just that chills me yes almost more than anything but yeah interesting interesting very interesting very interesting story very interesting story did you have any other further thoughts on the situation uh no i just can't get past her and i i can't figure out what the number two means yeah because i'm convinced it means something yeah but i don't know what but i would also love to hear well maybe i wouldn't want to hear the recordings of them the psychic investigation they did um i'd like to see the records of everything in and around that apartment building yeah just to see, like, what kind of stuff's been going on. I'd like to know every single person who's lived in that building. She was the second youngest, right? Oh, she was. Yeah. I mean, I'm stretching here, but I'm trying to see if there's any other, you know... Anything else that seems interesting? Well, it's also interesting. I mean, her alimony, she asked for 200000 She got 20000 Like, sure. I mean, technically, the second marriage was found void. Right. Right. So then that means she was then only legally married twice. And it was also the second one that was... Mm-hmm. Interesting. Where he, he had at least two affairs. I mean, this continues. Yeah. Uh, meanings behind the number two. The number her two. husband left her for a woman whose name is the same syllable two times. In her 20s. And I'm, I'm, I'm just reaching at this point. <laughs> well, listen. The number two is a symbol for the energetic vibration of teamwork, service, love, friendship, patience, personal growth, learning, emotional balance, partnership, acceptance, peace, bonding, and mutual interest. So what's interesting about that is that, to your point, she never was in another relationship, and the number two is is a number that represents relationships. I mean... I feel like there's a lot. Oh, yeah, there's something there that uh, 
I'm too terrified to look further. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's all relevant. I think it's all, again, to me, it feels like, I just think it was in the works. I don't know that I buy that 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 tarot reader reacted in that way. Because if that was the case, there would be unhinged people putting curses and hexes on people all the time, and they would be working. And that's not to say that doesn't happen and we just don't hear about it. But I feel like to this level, if we are to believe that all of this chaos was caused by this one person, then to me, they were suggested deliberately in order to get in there in order to do the curse. It just doesn't feel plausible to me that it just so happens that this person was like, you've deeply wronged me by not getting me a drink for a half an hour. So I'm going to do this thing to this level. Right? Yeah. It's absolutely over the top of a response. But especially over something like a drink and especially over a span of only 30 minutes. Yeah. Again, I want like, I want photos of the, from the party. I want more details. Yeah. Because one thing, she won't even tell, say when the party happened. Well, it was probably February 2nd. <laughs> two, I two. be surprised. Yeah, I just think if this is, if this, if we are to believe this is like truly delving into the dark arts, I said it. Yeah, thank um, you. Then I, I just find it very hard to believe that it wasn't in the works prior. Because again, if this person is that volatile and is that effective in creating curses, then how is this not happening all the time? Then it would be like anything that ever someone crosses this man, cuts this man off in traffic, he's he's putting curses out there. You know what I mean? Like, I just think she had to have been targeted, whether it was because she was like a socialite and he knew her that way. But I tend to believe it was more that, like, someone she knew wanted to take her down a notch. That's more than possible. Yeah. Anyway, listen, fascinating episode. Cannot get enough. Christy Oxborough, amazing work as always. Truly, you hit it out of the park. Haka side note. We're doing things we're doing right. I, look, the I've never felt more alive than typing the words hot goss side note. (laughs) And I've never felt more alive coming up with a jingle. Oh, it's where you shine. It really is. And we thank you, dear listeners, for joining us on this journey. If you haven't already, give us a follow on the socials on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails, on Twitter at Not Detectives. And of course, the only place for official True Crime and Cocktails merch is, of course, TrueCrewMerch.com. Remember, the Alien merch is over there, so check that out if you haven't already. Um, And also, um, I have Christmas music that's available now. At the time of this, when this is released, it'll be available sad this christmas stream it download it save it all the above um get ready for the holiday season yes oh my god i just burped so deeply as i was trying to talk this is around the right time i'm at the right level yeah you're doing great christy do you want to tell the people about next week's episode oh on the next true crime and cocktails supernatural 
Uncovered. That's right. Inspired by the X-Files Uncovered episode of the show. This is going to be spooky for our Halloween day release. Uh, Could not be more excited for this. Probably some more uh, haunts and ghosts. You're doing great. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Chris, did you want to say goodnight to the people? Oh, I'm going back to basics. Good night, Dave Grohl. Oh, yeah. Good night, Dave Grohl. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.